before we get on to the teachings proper, but you can keep it. Um, so mentioned at the beginning of the retreat uh, that in many ways the, 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 the retreat happening at all uh, is has been um, some somewhat of a miracle for uh, lots of different reasons and um, that Robert had uh, we had initially gambled on uh, gambled that his employers would give him the time you know the time off work to come and then it turned out that they were only giving a partial time to come and then Kirsten uh, heroically uh, sacrificed a, a full retreat to sit this retreat fully and joined with the teaching. Um, and so it's been a bit of a patchwork in, in that sense, um, but it's it's happening. And now, uh, well in fact tomorrow, uh, the time has already come for Robert to say goodbye as his employers uh, demand his services uh, on Monday morning, I, s- I assume. <laughs> yes, Monday morning. So um, so he will be leaving us about lunchtime tomorrow after his interviews. And um, just, again, I, I really want to say how grateful, how absolutely hugely grateful I, I am, and I think we all are, um, to you for being here and using your holiday time to, to do that. and. And uh, and also f- to Kirsten for for stepping in. It's just the the retreat couldn't have happened. So this kind of patchwork of uh, of uh, tag team teachers was was the only way this could have happened. And so we're really really grateful to Robert and everything that you've brought here and your spirit and your knowledge and and also to Kirsten um, very much that willingness to step in and offer and share and be there for everyone. So. Robert will slip out quietly with belly full after after lunch yesterday, tomorrow. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Too much emptiness of time, you get a little (laughs) confused. Um, Did you want to say anything? You don't have to. You do. Uh, Good. Yeah. Actually, just to echo that last point, um, you all probably know how it is on retreats. We have, I think, four days left, uh, something like that. And uh, in if this was a week retreat, that would be this would be like, you know, really towards the end. The mind starts sensing it's towards the end, 
Um, Papancha ready to bounce. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hindrances don't give a damn. You know, they they they'll be coming and going. You're up and down. You're wherever you are in your little or big wiggles. You know, um, as Robert said, ke- ke- keeping steady, keeping going. This is so much a part of of the art, the fundamentals of the art of this practice, the fundamentals of the art of any practice, the fundamentals that are of staying in relationship, staying with a project that you love, it's, it's, it's so crucial. Um, so how is your intention? How's that doing? What am I believing? Am I, am I again, this the thing we've come back to several times, am I, am I buying into what the seeds of the hindrances have spawned and then it's a story and it's very, very convincing and then my intention is wobbling. Uh, they're seductive and they seduce us, uh, the hindrances of Papancha seduce us into believing this or that, because that's so, uh, so convincing. Um, so these are precious days, you know, these whatever it is, four days are in precious days, precious opportunity to practice, to go further, to learn more about this territory, but also everything around this territory that we've talked about, my, my personal relationship with desire and intention and steadiness and form and all that. Um, so again, the, the once more, the invitation to, to work, play, enjoy, and find out. Okie doke. So today um, we will talk about the sixth jhana, which the Buddha didn't call the sixth jhana, uh, but called the realm of infinite consciousness. Um, the realm of infinite consciousness, the sphere or the base of infinite consciousness. And hoping for him to shed great light on what's involved here. Uh, as he goes through the stages describing a, a practitioner practicing, the thought, the thought occurs to him uh, after he's gone through, first of all, jhana's fifth jhana, the thought occurs to him, what if I, with the complete transcending of the, the sphere, the realm of the infinitude of space, realizing that consciousness is infinite, were to enter and remain in the realm of the infinitude of consciousness? Without jumping at the realm or the sphere of the infinitude of consciousness, he enters and remains in the sphere of this infinitude of consciousness. He sticks with that theme, develops it, pursues it, and establishes himself firmly in it. So there's not a lot of <laughs> not a lot to go on there, other than stick with it, <laughs> develop it, pursue it, establish it. And it's something to do with consciousness, and again, it's very, very big. <laughs> okay, what is what is this? What's he pointing to here? What's involved in this in this uh, this perception attainment? This opening? This this? Um, I would say the principle, the principle, the central feature, if you like, the m- is awareness knowing itself. Awareness knowing itself. It sometimes I've heard it described as actually it's awareness knowing 
the infinitude of space. In other words, it's the consciousness of the fifth jhana. Um, and there's, a, there's certainly a way that it can seem like that, but I think, uh, I've, c- I've come more to think that the primary, the primary feature is just awareness knowing itself. And then that, it, there's an inf- infinity, infin- infinite expanse of that. But either way, but I think uh, awareness knowing infinite space or the awareness that knows infinite space, or the awareness knowing itself. I tend to think the the second there, the awareness knowing itself is primary. I should say right now that I use the words awareness and consciousness completely interchangeably. Um, Over the last mm, 30, 30, 40, 45 years or so, uh, there's there's been, you know, different kind of, mm, not really trends, but people, some, some people have at times drawn those two words apart and referred to consciousness as something that's much more smaller. It's one of the aggregates, it's impermanent, it's unsatisfactory, it's narrow, it's uh, tied to objects, etc. Um, and awareness as something uh, vast, free, even ultimate. So they give awareness a capital A, etc. Um, I don't ultimately buy, buy into that, so I, I think it's actually clearer to just use the words interchangeably, awareness and consciousness. And then we get different, we'll have to explain, different um, senses or perceptions of the nature of awareness at different times and they have different what we might say relative truth value anyway all we need to know for now is i'm i will use those words completely completely synonymously and interchangeably so awareness knowing itself what's happening here is there's a kind of honing in tuning to and honing in on awareness on consciousness Consciousness hones in on consciousness. Awareness hones in on awareness. The Pali word is vijnana. And there isn't, by the way, a distinction in Pali between a word for consciousness and a word for awareness. Um, uh, Vijnana is, I think, the grammatical term in Pali. It's a verbal noun. I think that's the correct word. So it literally translates as knowing. So awareness or consciousness or knowing are synonymous terms. Okay, what is what does awareness mean? It me in in Buddhist uh, understanding, it means knowing. Um, so it doesn't mean knowing something. I know something. I'm clever because I know what the square root of two is to eight decimal places. It means knowing. It means well, being conscious. It means uh, the recognition of something, the perception of something. So. Uh, there's this kind of, again and again in this state, there's this uh, almost returning, well, a returning to and a kind of locking in on the sense of knowing. Um, and sometimes, depending on how you access it, you can use, again, these little grains, little tinctures of whispers, internal whispers in the mind to direct the mind and help support it uh, to to kind of lock in on that primary nimitta. So the primary nimitta is consciousness. The primary nimitta is consciousness knowing itself. And you can use these little tinctures just like knowing, knowing, or consciousness or whatever it is, just to help, very, very subtle, help support the mind in its attuning to, uh, finding, and then sustaining 
its focus on the sense of knowing. There's a very subtle whisper in, inter- internally to direct the attention to the sense of knowing. I would say, uh, this is a long, long debate in, in um, certainly in Buddhist history, in, in the Mahayana as well as the Theravada and the Vajrayana, etc. I would say, and it's probably a debate outside of Buddhist uh, history as well, Buddhist philosophy and psychology, but I would say consciousness of consciousness is an integral aspect uh, of consciousness. In other words, to be conscious involves the the subtle, at least the subtle kind of recognition that one is conscious in the moment. Otherwise, a, a machine can be aware of this or that, but a machine doesn't have consciousness. It doesn't recognize itself. It doesn't have that feeling of being aware. So I would say, there's been a long debate about this, but in a way I think it's a little bit ridiculous. It's just part of the definition of consciousness that consciousness in any moment is conscious of itself. Do you understand what I mean by that? Usually, um, so that's what we mean when we say this person is conscious or, uh, or that machine is not conscious or I was conscious, etc. Usually that sense of being conscious is not something that uh, that it's sort of very much in the mix of a moment of consciousness. There's much more attention to what we're conscious of, the object, this or that thing that I'm paying attention to, this or that object of consciousness. But to some degree, some subtle degree mixed in with any m- in any moment of consciousness, and as part of what defines it as consciousness, as I said, is some small degree of a sense that there is consciousness right now. And, and it goes with the subject, I am conscious this is conscious. Um, Now that subtle sense, that subtle portion, if you like, or strand within consciousness can be amplified. And again, how do things get amplified? They get, first they need to be noticed, then they need to be attuned to, and that attuning to what we notice amplifies it. In other words, in the mix of what consciousness is in any moment, by noticing this uh, sense of being conscious, this awareness of awareness, by noticing it uh, and tuning to it repeatedly amplifies that sense within consciousness until eventually the relative balance can go from mostly uh, mostly I'm conscious of the object, whatever the object is I'm paying attention to, until uh, and very little uh, sense of the consciousness of consciousness um, with Noticing it, tuning to it, and, and the amplification that will happen naturally with that, that can start to reverse. And it starts to be that um, eventually all, all the attention, all the consciousness is the consciousness of consciousness. Does that make sense? Um, so there's, a, there's this kind of, you know, lock effect. You know lock, canals, water, when they do that? Do you have that in Israel? Because it's a desert, you don't know. So, <laughs> um, like that, yeah. Um, can you just either look at something right now, or feel a body sensation, 
or listen to the heating sound. So there's the object, the sound, the sensation, the visual object, whatever it is. And at the same time that's there, can you get a sense that there is awareness there? You're conscious of being conscious. Can you be aware of the awareness there? It's mixed in with it. So this is a beginning of something. It's quite a hard thing to stay with. It's, it's a subtle thing. So we're talking as we go into the jhanas, everything gets subtler and subtler. But you can p- train the mind to, to pick that up and stay with it and amplify it. Um, but we're really talking about in the present moment. This, this moment, this moment, this moment of awareness and getting the sense of awareness of awareness in the present moment. So this is, this is key to the whole thing. Um, it's subtle, and so some of you might not have been able to get a sense, that's, that would be very normal. Some of you might have practice already doing this, either way, fine. Um, but we're talking about a subtle sense, and therefore it needs practice to develop that, to, to, stay tu- to notice it, to stay tuned to it, to kind of uh, develop it. Um, and this, uh, uh, there, as I'll explain later, there's, there's many ways into this, but this, this sense of consciousness can then expand. Nothi- this lock effect, um, there's no other, all the other objects are kind of filtered out of it, and it becomes just an infinite consciousness, infinitely expansive consciousness. And h- here, now again, we're really talking about, wow, there's, there's, uh, it's so different. A perception so different an opening than we usually have as human beings. So, I think I shared much earlier in the retreat someone coming in for an interview and saying, Oh, yeah, I think I got into the sixth jhana the other day, and it was all very like, yeah, um, it, it can't be. This, we're really talking about something that's I- immensely striking and very, very impacting on the consciousness, on the, on the sense of being. So, it's a deep realm of existence, a deep. Uh, that's what that word ayatana means, explain. A deep realm, a deep dimension of the cosmos. Something divine there, for sure. That's uh, a sense. It's very intense. So it's, uh, it's a quite an intense experience. Um, electric, almost, I would say. Consciousness, moment after moment, focusing on itself with nothing else there and just an infinite expanse of this. It's, it's electric, it's compelling, it's intense, usually. And there's something in that, it's almost like it's sufficient unto itself. There's just consciousness, there's nothing else, and this consciousness just knows itself and it pervades infinitely. And it has this kind of transcendent quality of being to it, sufficient unto itself. It does not need anything. Just consciousness knowing itself forever. Eternally sufficient unto itself. Eternally transcendent. Eternal in the sense of lasting forever. So again, um, it is, as the Buddha calls it, nisarana, nisaranam, an escape. Um, It's another dimension of, of the cosmos, another dimension of being. It's another realm there is a freedom from everything else there. Freedom from the phenomenal material world. Uh, a release, a letting go of all else. 
There's just nothing else there but this pure consciousness, knowing itself, sufficient unto itself, infinitely expansive. And the objects are filtered out, everything else gone. So, I've mentioned a couple of times on this retreat, and I know some of you are familiar in practice uh, with what I call the, the practice of the vastness of awareness. So it's actually worth lingering on this and comparing the two because they can sound very familiar. They are both infinitely vast consciousness or infinitely vast awareness, um, totally, both of them totally unperturbed by uh, the arising or passing of phenomena of, of other things. Both of them, uh, there's a sense that they last forever, that they're eternal in that sense of eternal, uh, forever duration, um, forever undisturbed, forever radiant, forever peaceful. So they bo there's clearly some similarity and people might, uh, well, it's, it's good to distinguish them. Because um, the we've just said there's a letting go of, of uh, everything else in, in the sixth jhana, in this infinite consciousness. The vastness of awareness too, if we just compare on in is also a letting go. It's quite difficult to pinpoint actually what the differences are, but I would say that the vastness of awareness, yes, it's a letting go and it has all those other similarities that I just mentioned in common with this infinite consciousness, this realm of infinite consciousness. But the vastness of awareness also, it, it more includes phenomena, objects, experiences. It's more inclusive. And particularly what it does is it includes and is even accessed by way of uh, its relationship with phenomena, with other experiences. So it's their relationship with the vastness of awareness. That's the key difference. That's the one of the key elements, including what we might call their substantive relationship. In other words, as I, as I think I mentioned, one, when one practices a vastness of awareness, and there's different stages of it, as, as it moves into its deeper stages, there can be very much this beautiful sense that uh, not only as it was earlier, in earlier stages, do phenomena seem to arise out of this vastness of awareness, this beautiful, peaceful, radiant and divine space of awareness. Not only do they rise out and and uh, die back in, they're born and they out of and die back into this source. Um, after it gets deeper, they also it also feels like their very substance is awareness. So there's a sense that the the, the substantial nature of all phenomenon is this awareness, is this vast divine awareness. So that the vastness of awareness also feels like a freedom, but it's a freedom with and within appearances and uh, experiences and phenomena. It's a view or a way of looking or a perspective on phenomena. It's a view, a way of looking, a perspective on phenomena, experience, on this life as we, as we experience this life. It's a different view, sense of this world and this life. 
whereas the sixth jhana is something transcendent. It's beyond. It's gone beyond this world. The infinite consciousness is more intense uh, than the vastness of awareness, which has a sort of almost infinitely deep ease to it. There's a real intensity in, in the sixth jhana, and, and it's a much rarer state for people to access for a number of reasons, sometimes because it takes a lot to sustain that intensity or even build up enough intensity that one would find oneself in such a state. It's also much rarer because one can open to the vastness of awareness, or the vastness of awareness can open up for one from much more common ways of practicing insight meditation. In fact, if we just practice insight meditation with a more open awareness, and then just aware and let things come and go, let things come and go, it will start to open up the beginning stages of the vastness of awareness. So that quite a number of uh, experienced insight meditators will have opened to some degree, to some level, to, to the vastness of awareness. If you're interested in the vastness of awareness, we mentioned it a couple of times on this retreat. There's uh, there's a whole chapter, I think, in in seeing that freeze on it. It in a way depends on maybe th- the three chapters that come before that, but it's there. It should be very very clear. Uh, really, really worth uh, that opening and, and the the modicum of trouble it takes to open it. So worth it. Um, there's also, I think, uh, four guided meditations. I know some of you know this. That I think I did years and years ago. They each have the title of space of awareness, and they've each got a different subtitle, and they're guided meditations of different ways of opening up the vastness of awareness, if I remember. So it's a different state. It's not the sixth jhana. It's, you could say it's related. Definitely, definitely worth uh, visiting and opening to and putting putting some time in there and being touched by that um, and the beauty of that and that and the, the liberative and healing qualities of that. But, r- but rarer, uh, the, the sixth jhana, the infinite consciousness, is something rarer. Um, they're also slightly different in their, as I said, in their after effects on perception. Again, it, it in the vastness of awareness, uh, you could get up and go for a walk and see a stone, and the substance of the stone is that awareness, is the divine awareness, is this vastness of awareness. Or that that stone is somehow, the appearance of the stone is the play of this awareness. It's really hard to put your finger on, but I think it would be more more accurate to say in the infinite consciousness, with the after effect on, on perception, a phenomenon or a stone or an object feels more as if it has consciousness. Not so much that its substance is awareness, but that it has consciousness. Even if it has consciousness as part of a a cosmic consciousness. Does this make sense at all? It might be some very abstruse differences if you're not familiar with all this, but... Which bit? Yeah, so I would say, in, so now distinguishing in the after effects of perception between the t- between these two states, the vastness of awareness and the infinite consciousness. The after effect of perception of the vastness of awareness will 
will be something akin to that the stone, the appearance of the stone feels like its substance is awareness or that the appearance of the stone is the play of awareness. Infinite consciousness can feel as if the after effect on perception is more more perhaps moving towards the stone has consciousness. Um, And even if that the stone's consciousness is part of a, 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 a much more unified cosmic consciousness or divine consciousness. So it's hard to articulate. I've I'm n- I'm never really heard anyone even attempt to m- make these articulations, but um, that's sort of that's my current thinking about it. Both of them, though, are un- undisputedly m- mystical senses of divinity, and it's it's very often the case that a person will start using words like divine, even if they've never in their life used those words before. Actually, either of these two uh, experiences, the vastness of awareness or the infinite consciousness, um, one really feels as if uh, there is something of, of a divine order here or something of the nature of the divine that is being revealed to one, that's being opened to, to one. This is God's awareness. Uh, can be the sense. Um, but as we said, the, the sixth jhana, the infinite consciousness, is, m- is more purely transcendent. It's really a realm beyond, beyond phenomena. I would say that both of these experiences are immeasurably precious, immeasurably precious, I, w- I would say. And I would also say that they're part of our human birthright. As human beings, this is part of what what is available to us, and what is what is our human birthright to to know this, to open to this, to be touched by these uh, these levels of being, these dimensions of being, these openings. They're available, and particularly with infinite consciousness, it brings such you know with repeated exposure, it brings such a different sense of existence such a sense of adding or opening up a sense of the dimensionality of existence, of the cosmos, of being. There are also many other, I won't go into them now, but there are many kind of variations and sort of satellite states around around the, the sixth jhana. Um, especially when we practice with the eyes open and especially in terms of their after effects on perception. But I just want to, again, take a slight detour, not detour, but um, again, just a comment about desire. It's so, so important. You know, it would be, I think it would be really understandable if someone with repeated sort of going in and out of of this infinite consciousness and really being touched by it and opened by it and opening to it, and assimilating that opening and that sense and that perception, assimilating that t- into their sense of existence. It would be really understandable if such a person were to kind of then look back um, and um, think to themselves uh, that life, knowing that realm, uh, is so much richer and so much richer in dimensionality than life not knowing that realm, what they remember from not knowing that realm. It's almost like, how, how, how would I not uh, 
how did I live that way? It would be very, very understandable. And they might also think, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to live without knowing this, without that opening, without that sense of dimensionality, that it would feel to them in almost retrospect as if there was a kind of impoverishment or they were being, uh, something was taken out of life, an impoverished life in some, in some sense or felt like life without that would, in some way, not that they want to escape there into this transcendent realm, but in some way, maybe this person would feel like life without that is, in, in a subtle way, less, less worthwhile. That would be very understandable as a view or a feeling. Um, but it's tricky, isn't it? It's tricky. I'm hesitant even saying all this stuff, and I don't know how it lands because it's loaded, and it's loaded because of many, many things that we've talked about on this retreat so far, in terms of desire, in terms of goals, in terms of all that, in terms of what I said yesterday about living in a, in a, in a Western culture that, let's say, post the Protestant Reformation, or starting with the Protestant Reformation, has actually, or beginning with the Protestant Reformation, there, there has been this kind of... Um, deconstructing and dissolution of any agreed upon idea of what makes life worthwhile and what's, what's, uh, etc. So it's a long, and don't underestimate how influenced we are, not by Buddhist history so much, but by Western history. So things that happened in, you know, in relation to medieval theology influence us today way more often than people realize. And so something happened, starting with the Protestant Reformation, that it fractured, fragmented, and dis dissolved any sense of agreed upon idea of what was uh, holy. And that influences very much what anyone can say to anyone else about what is worthwhile or what one should desire, etc. So all this is kind of here when we talk about such states. It's loaded. It's charged in all kinds of uh, in all kinds of ways. Can potentially painful in all kinds of ways, uh, etc. Potentially enticing in all kinds of ways. So the usual insight meditation way of teaching, or at least it used to be, um, usual insight meditation uh, teaching, and, and you've probably come across, is not about experiences. Right? It's just, just don't try and get experiences. Just notice what, what experiences there are. Just be mindful. Just notice what comes up and, and what goes. And um, you know, to say something, or this person saying, or it's me saying, you know, this is, what did I say? Uh, something that, you know, how precious they were. And even to say that is a little bit loaded. It's implying something. It invites, it opens the door for the pain of striving, the pain of desire that we've revisited uh, several times on this retreat. So the usual way, or what used to be, I don't know if it even is anymore, but the usual way of teaching insight meditation is a lot easier because it effectively just closes the door on any kind of striving like that. It just all you have to do is, is be aware. Whatever comes, whatever goes, it's, it's all the same. Good experiences, bad experiences, remarkable experiences, boring experiences. All you have to do is just be aware. And when you're not aware, you just notice it and you come back. 
And there's, there's such value in that, way, in that way of practicing and that way of teaching. It's a lot easier. It's a lot easier, I think, for both the student and the teacher. Um, when you start saying, oh, this is really precious, or that's really precious, or this experience is, you know, then you, you start running risks. But there's risks both ways. If you go just into the mode of um, uh, experiences are not important, there, there are risks, there are significant risks. And all this, again, is tied into desire. And what do I desire? And why do I desire what I desire? What's going on with me? What's authentic desire? What's deep desire? What's involved in my desire? And how we teach um, r regarding such experiences, such openings, such perceptions. You know, if one goes into an interview and reports such an experience, and and what comes back is a is a response. What comes back from the teacher is a response of sounds sounds good, but it's just another experience. It's impermanent. Let it go. Don't get attached. Um, so. That response itself is a kind of teaching. It's set in a framework, again, that needs to be at least semi-coherently set, nestled within a whole idea of what l awakening and liberation is and what insight is. Yeah. So again, we get this tracing down of what, what uh, tracing down or feeding down from a top-level conception into how I'm responding to this or that experience in any moment, or someone else reporting this or that experience in any moment. So if I say it's immeasurably precious, it's loaded, you know. Um, but it's tricky. And I think um, it would be understandable if a person did report such a sense of uh, almost like I can't, I can't almost imagine life without that the sense of that kind of dimensionality to it. It would be understandable. Um, they may have some work to do, uh, but it, it, it would potentially be understandable. So such a different sense of existence, such a different sense of the cosmos, of the dimensionality of being that comes with this. I, and we, as I said, assimilate that, incorporate that into our being in addition to the usual sense of consciousness. It doesn't then replace it 100% uh, of the time. It just becomes available sometimes. It's a completely other sense of consciousness. It's a completely other, s other dimension. But our usual sense is still available. And the usual sense of consciousness is it's mine, and it's somehow in here, or usually in here, in the head. Um, and from here, in my head, it's somehow sensing out. Um, and it's associated with, um, with this materiality, meaning this uh, physical matter, this physical organism. That's the usual agreed upon uh, idea, but also sense of consciousness in our culture. So that's still available, but other senses become, become available as well. It's not the case that this infinite consciousness is the ultimate nature of consciousness. It's not. Okay? And even just labeling it as the sixth jhana would, would you know, strongly suggest that it can't be. Um, nor is it 
ultimately the true nature of mind, nature of awareness, nature of consciousness, um, uh, is nor is nor is the vastness of awareness. So neither of these are the true or ultimate nature of awareness or consciousness. They are not the final truth regarding awareness, regarding consciousness. Also, I don't think they really uh, such an experience doesn't really prove um, uh, the possibility of a consciousness. Uh, let's say, without or not contained by matter. So that's the experience, there's this consciousness, it's an immaterial realm, right? We're now in the immaterial realms, arupa jhanas, arupa ayatanas, and there's just this infinite suf- consciousness sufficient unto itself, and it would s- the experience would seem to suggest is that here's a consciousness without, without um, uh, being contained in matter. Um, to me, it, it doesn't prove that. So then, then there's a whole questions of epistemology from meditation experiences and what we can, uh, you know, uh, deduce from a certain meditative opening. I don't think it proves that. We would need more convincing other other kinds of experience, other phenomena, other uh, things to happen to to be more convincing that there's a possibility of consciousness without without being contained or associated with matter. But still, so again, how, how are we to regard all this? I think, I think there's value to say, here now we're opening to deep provisional truths. They're deeper truths, but they're still provisional. So in this, we can talk about almost like a scale of relative truth, if you like. They're deeper truths, still provisional. Provisional truths, experiences, openings, insights. What's the Buddha's words? Perception, attainments. And he talks about them in a scale of perception attainments. The attainment, the ability, the achievement to perceive this or that as a level of truth, if you like it, but still a provisional truth, not a final, not an ultimate truth. So that feels, to me, really, really important. How do we get there? How, do we, how does such a place, how does such a realm, how does such a dimension of existence of being open up for us. So there's a number of possibilities. Um, one is simply, as usual, just hanging out in the previous jhana, in which case the realm of infinite space, just hanging out there, really getting into it, revisiting over and over, hanging out, hanging out, and it will naturally mature. It naturally matures at a certain point from the previous jhana. That would be a very normal uh, occurrence. I think I very briefly mentioned this earlier in the retreat, though. I think, um, although I know one teacher disagrees with me and one teacher uh, who agrees, I think the order of ease of access through these arupa uh, jhanas, much as for some the order of ease of access through the uh, rupa jhanas, is individually variable. So I, pr- I feel for me it was, I felt it was easier to access for example, to learn um, uh, this infinite consciousness than the infinite space. Other people, it might be the other way around or something. But I think there's, an I- uh, there's individual variation here. So one teacher I had insisted on doing them in, in, you know, in their sort of numerical order, and, and another teacher was much less, uh, less pedantic about that, less emphatic about that. 
But I would agree. I think there's different individual individual variations in tendency there. But one way, as I said, is just hanging out in the realm of infinite space and just just really really getting into it. And at t- uh, it, when when the fruit is ripe, it ripens, it matures. Um, then a second possibility is to to be in the realm of infinite space, to hang out there, and then at some point when it's steady, when you're really into it when it's established, when you've got some mastery, then begin uh, becoming aware of the awareness there in that state, in that space. Um, so there's just a subtle shift uh, of, of the attention and of the intention to pick up um, on that subtle sense of awareness that we, that we uh, experimented with earlier today, but within the, the, the realm of infinite space. So that would be a very kind of um, straightforward way of going about it if it needs if it needs a little nudging uh, third possibility is um, any jhana any jhana well any of any of the jhanas up to now let's say better easier to say um, or even a normal state of consciousness a non jhanic state of consciousness and actually just what we did earlier so can you get a sense take so, so if it's a if it's a jhanic state of awareness, the object of that, the object of the consciousness at any time will be the primary nimitta. If it's a non-jhanic state of awareness, it could be any um, smell, taste, uh, touch, sight, sound, something that's m- quite steady, though. Okay, you don't want something flickering too much. Something quite steady, or it's probably easier if something's quite steady. So, something you can look at and it's not going to disappear on you. Um, or a sound that's continuous, as I pick the heating and not, well, there are no birds right now, but pick the heating, it's more of a constant thing. And j- so normal consciousness with a normal sense object or any jhanic uh, c- uh, consciousness with the consciousness of the primary nimitta, and then uh, noticing, tuning to, and focusing in on that sense of knowing, that sense of consciousness. So in other words, th- this realm of infinite consciousness can be approached not from the fifth jhana, not even from the fourth, third, second, first, can be approached from normal consciousness. It's just a matter of tuning, noticing, tuning, and then amplifying that very sense of consciousness, and then and then it can begin to open up and open up. So that's one way as well. A uh, fourth way is obviously related to that, but I mentioned it, I think yesterday, I can't remember, uh, is and the Buddha says it somewhere or other is to r- he he kind of classifies the arupa jhanas the arupa ayatanas as if you like perspectives on um, on the fourth jhana. So it's really that there are not eight jhanas but four jhanas, and the fourth one has five variations: the fourth jhana and then the four arupa jhanas. Um, so somewhere or other in the Pali Canon, I, I'm pretty sure the Buddha f- frames it like that. And already uh, we said in his description, what he uh, emphasized in his description of the fourth jhana was uh, the pure awareness, the body uh, wrapped in pure awareness, or he sometimes says pure mindfulness. So it's right there in the fourth jhana. And if I pick up on that, pick up on the sense of presence, the sense of consciousness, of pure mindfulness, pure awareness, right there in the fourth jhana, the body has become that that will open up into into the infinite consciousness. Uh, 
Fifth, there's insight ways of looking that will open up um, the infinite consciousness. But they're actually the same as what opens up infinite space. In other words, the same ones might take you to either space, either, either the infinite space or the infinite consciousness. We mentioned them yesterday. And lastly, as always, with experience, with enough familiarity, enough in and out, enough um, part of the whole deal with mastery is eventually we can access these, uh, these realms or this particular realm just by subtle intention, just by remembering it remembering that realm, remembering our experience of it. And that opens the doors, opens the doors to this divine awareness, this God's mind. Um, again, I don't think there's any need to push or stretch it to infinity. It's more, uh, whichever way you go, I, I don't think that's so uh, necessary. It should, I think it will, but it should automatically just expand that way. Um, partly because there's nothing else in consciousness. There's nothing in the way. Um, n there's nothing but infinite consciousness. And, so, and again, that could be a little, a little tincture. That if, if it's not quite stable yet and you're, you're working to, s to consolidate, you can just drop in that nothing but infinite consciousness. And that, that kind of primes that's very, very subtle. It's not like a big thinking. Very, this is an alchemical tincture one's putting into the space just to, just to very gently uh, direct and guide the mind and support that opening out. Um, so it should go, it probably will go automatically because there's nothing in the way really. There's nothing to limit it. Sometimes we just need to relax into it. So it's strange. It's, it is a very intense state, but there might be, as you work with it, there might be times when actually it's more, it's more relaxation is needed. And other times it's more like really honing in with the intensity on that focus on the consciousness, on the consciousness of consciousness. Um, so one can just let it expand. Um, this leaning forward business that I mentioned to you can happen, start happening actually sometimes in the third jhana, um, but certainly in the fourth and later. Um, this more relaxed approach may help with that because sometimes the leaning forward is again, in the usual, not just intellectual construal, but sense of attention uh, placing its object, its mental object in front, and then just a little bit of trying, we, we end up leaning forward because just a little bit of effort, we're aiming in front of ourselves. But the more relaxed approach can open it up more evenly, so it may help with that leaning forward issue. So a lot depends on how you access this, this uh, infinite consciousness because, um, yeah, if you're coming from infinite space, there's sort of nothing there to prevent it becoming infinite. It's already infinite, so it just kind of flips to a consciousness. If you're coming from, let's say, just an, a normal consciousness, um, then, and y and then you're focusing, you're noticing the sense of consciousness, you're noticing the awareness of awareness, you're you're tuning to that and amplifying it, then um, it may well be that other objects come in and out of the awareness as you're as you're trying to do that, and either you just stay really, really with the sense of of knowing, really, really with the sense of consciousness, um, or you somehow see, sense the other objects as consciousness. Okay, again, the Buddha talks about escape, as we said, nisaranam, and um, Again, I've still forgotten to look up the word, but he, he talks um, uh, about 
what's often in English translated as releases of awareness. So the different jhanas, and then particularly the the formless, uh, uh, are releases of awareness. So again, it's a realm, we're talking about a realm here, completely free, uh, completely free from, completely transcending the hassle um, of uh, and, and the reach. Completely free from and transcending the hassle and the reach of material perceptions. Sometimes the Buddha calls the four formless realms the peaceful liberations. So that's a synonym, the peaceful liberations. And, um, and then there's passages where he talks about fully liberated beings, arahants, liberated in one way or liberated in two ways. And an arahant, fully liberated being liberated in one way, is just someone who's uh, gotten rid of, exterminated, expunged all greed, hatred, and delusion. They've ended their kilesas. But an arahant liberated in two ways is someone who also has access to these formless realms. And the Buddha has this lovely passage. Um, They remain touching with their body the peaceful liberations. So their sense of, again, their whole sense of existence has has touching with their body something that's beyond the body and immaterial. They remain in the world touching with their body the peaceful liberations. And other arahants, other fully enlightened beings, don't don't know these realms. They haven't developed them. They're not necessary. So there's difference. Uh, But the very, again, experientially, the very sense of release, of of a beyond, of realms um, beyond, that very sense can help maintain. Again, if if you're working in this in this space in this realm, and it's kind of just working to really settle it at any one time, then the very sense of release and beyondness um, and escape uh, and release can can be part of what helps consolidate it in that moment. But I need to enjoy that. In other words, the very sense of this transcend, the transcendence of it, the beyondness, the release of it, they're slightly different things because release is I am released or this is released. Beyondness, transcendence, there is that. Um, but the enjoyment of that, the subtle enjoyment of that is again also part of the, 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 uh, the binding glue, the consolidating of uh, moisture, liquid of the experience. So again, such an opening, such a perception, such a revelation relativizes this this world, the world that we all agree on, this world of material forms, of things, of beings, etc. Opening to that relativizes this world. It takes its place in a series of worlds, of realms. It's not just there is this world and nothing else. It, and then it relativizes our relationship with this world. And that could happen in different ways. It could, as we said before, um, become problem to me, to, to my way of thinking, could become problematically dualistic. It can certainly become dualistic to some people's thinking. It's rarer and rarer these days, but to some people's thinking, dualism is not a problem at all. This is all. This is samsara. This is not worth much. We want out. We want not to be reborn. And that's, I think, traditionally the. Th- 
the thrust of Pali Canon teachings. It's much, much less common these days. Um, but I, t so s for some people, that kind of dualism is not at all a problem. Um, but I, I think it can be da dangerous, that kind of dualism, because then how am I regarding this world? Am I caring for it? Do I love it? What's my duty to this world and others in it? What's my relationship? Have I become, has it become problematically dualistic? Do you understand what I mean by this? Um, so it could, and for some people that's not a problem. I think there's a danger and a problem there in, in the way that I would see the whole movement of the Dharma. But um, it's much less so, much less risk of being problematically dualistic if, again, same principles as before, if we let the after effects of perception uh, open up, if we really explore them, they become, for my, my way of, uh, what I want to emphasize in teaching all this is, as I said, the after effects on perception are as significant as the pure jhanic experiences th themselves. Why? Partly because of this dualism thing, partly because it's, it's that that really changes or those after effects on perception have a big impact in our sense of this world. Um, so if I have the after effect on perception, the stone has consciousness and there's divinity radiating from everywhere, this kind of divinity um, radiating from everywhere, everything is that, then the dualism, as we've discussed before, gets evened out. Yeah. So that's one uh, important, important uh, reason. Second kind of level of approach in, in targeting or in, in uh, rehabilitating any tendency towards problematic dualism is again understanding the dependent arising and therefore the emptiness of perception. Everything that I talked about the other day. This experience of the world that seven plus billion people agree upon this experience of infinite consciousness, this experience of a subtle, subtle realm world, this experience of infinite space, whatever it is, they're all dependent arisings. They all arise dependent on certain ways of looking. This world and that, this realm and that, are perceptions arising dependent on different ways of looking. And understanding that, in the most powerful way, transcends duality and gives us freedom to be dualistic when we want to be dualistic and non-dualistic when we want to be non-dualistic. As I said, there collapses any duality between, between non-duality and duality. And we're free. Free with a range of looking, a range of ways of looking. Free to move. Free to give all a sense of equal sacredness because we've understood something about the emptiness of it all, the dependent arising of it all, because we've played with insight ways of looking, we've played with ways of looking enough to, to open that whole understanding out. So, he, the Buddha also talks about these states and characterizes them as they're a kind of equanimity. Okay, and certainly they are very equanimous. I mean, just the very, as I said, they're completely unperturbed, completely undisturbed. In that sense, they're, they're really equanimous. There's, there's no push-pull towards anything, uh, any other objects there, let's say. Actually, that's not quite true, but it's, it's a state of very deep equanimity. So certainly they're very calm, and, uh, and they're very focused. Um, but it's also true, I think, that 
again, with experience, there might be secondary background emotion. So yes, equanimous, yes, calm, and all that. But somehow it might be that in the background, one is jumping for joy at the same time. Um, there's wonder, potentially, love, uh, peace, ecstasy. All, th all these can be kind of background uh, experiences, I would say. And, and, and naturally so, rightly so. And we already mentioned release and freedom. Just like the infinite space, I would really recommend practicing these with eyes open, practicing this, this realm as well, with, with opening to this realm with eyes open, definitely. Again, looking at the sky or, or the space um, and, and letting, that, letting that expand. Maybe it goes to infinite space first and then it flips. Maybe you're just beginning to get the sense of consciousness in that much bigger visual space or kinesthetic space or not. Um, so, uh, in other words, as we, as we described, with, with a much smaller sense, not with the sky, not with the space, just with, with any object. Like, like the infinite space, um, profound sense uh, and profoundly impacting sense of oneness, mystical cosmic oneness, um, almost overwhelming in, uh, in, in that the perception of it that emerges both in the jhana, in the sort of pure jhanic experience and in the after effect on perception. And again, this is why so much emphasize the after effects on perception, really taking that time off the cushion in a kind of much more relaxed way, walking around, cup of tea, whatever it is, and, and noticing the effects after uh, a formal practice on perception. How, d how is now, right now, what, what's, what's happened to my perception of self, of world, of consciousness, of whatever it is, of things, of materiality? All that, and really noticing that, um, because th that does something very profound. That oneness can be in the jhana or in the after effect on perception. It's a oneness. Yesterday we said the primary oneness that came, that comes with the infinite space, is is a oneness of materiality, of material substance. This we are all star stuff. We are all the same Big Bang. We are really one matter. Um, our bodies, etc. Um, this, in contrast, is a oneness of consciousness. It's a oneness of awareness. And as uh, yeah, it, it so, uh, one can have the sense that there's there's not really there's the appearance of separate awarenesses, separate consciousness. But actually, uh, at another level, there's one. There's one uh, divine consciousness of in which of which we are part or in which we partake. When you get to soul-making dharma, there are important variants of this. Then it actually gets significantly different. And I've noticed when I'm teaching soul-making dharma, and I say something about participating in God's mind, then sometimes people write to me, and they, uh, from, from what I read, from what they're saying, it sounds like they're they're relating or they're hearing what I said uh, in a soul-making dharma context. They're hearing this this oneness of awareness, but actually something different in a soul-making dharma. There are more variants and, and more subtlety and more allowances for the individual particularity. God's awareness needs my awareness, my particular awareness, my particular dukkha, my particular ways that my mind works, and yours, your particularities, your foibles, your struggles, 
And that's different than it's just there is one awareness, a simple, pure, clean awareness that uh, somehow uh, we will participate in. So there's significant differences there, but this is not a soul-making retreat, but just for those of you who are interested. Um, the oneness, technically, I suppose, again, is a secondary nimitta. The primary nimitta is the consciousness. The oneness, I mean, in a way, they'll get completely fused at times, of course, um, but technically it's a secondary nimitta. So we should focus primarily, as always, on primarily, most of the time, on the consciousness, and the oneness will, it will come. Um, uh, it will come, it will also arise just later, you know, just naturally in the after effects of perception. You can trust that. So you don't, even though in some ways you could say perhaps one of the most significant and most impactful and most potent and most transformative um, perceptions and, and knowings and digestions here is the very sense of oneness. Um, still, we don't need to Probably, most people don't need to go looking for it. You can trust that it will arise and it will, it will do its work. Of course, there are always exceptions, but I would say that. Um, so, again, same deal with mastery. All the, all the little tricks of the trade and the little things that we play, same deal. Going for walks and all that. Um, and just to emphasize, you know, I don't, know, I don't know how all this sounds, but it's really just a matter of training. So when we talked yesterday about the fifth, fifth jhana, the infinite space, and or even today, you know, yesterday with, with the infinite space, we said, you know, looking at an object that we would usually sense in the very looking, at, so even though I'm not touching it, my sense in the looking is of solidity. That would be the normal sense of it. And then seeing and sensing physical objects, material objects as space, seeing and sensing them as not solid and staying with that. So getting that sense and then staying with that and, and infinite space can open up from that, from uh, what's basically, um, if, I, if I sustain it, what's basically then a training of the different elements here. Can I, can I flip so I can, so I can see what I usually sense as solid, can I flip the perception so that I sense it as space, as not solid. And then can I sustain that? And then can I allow that to open? These are all just elements of a training. Just, what is it? Training the perception of space. I'm training the perception of space. Space is not something that we usually pay attention to. Usually, we're basically addicted or imprisoned or habi habitually we pay attention to objects in space. We very rarely, and even if an architect or something talks about paying attention to space, it's not quite the same thing. And what they really mean is a, a, a geometry that uh, has shapes in space. That actual space itself is not something that human beings habitually pay attention to. So we're training a perception, training an ability of what's more a more refined perception. But the point I want to make is it's all training, just training of perceptions. And the training has slightly different elements in it. And how many suttas are there where the Buddha says, um, and he's describing some meditation and, and describing a monk doing this, and that, thus he trains himself. And then a little bit of, thus he trains himself, thus he trains himself. It's just training. And what that means is it's possible, it's available. So again, even the thing we did earlier today, can you get a sense of, of the, the awareness of awareness? Can you, get, can you become aware of awareness in the moment, in the moment? 
And then can you sustain that? And can you focus in on it? And can you let it amplify? And then can you let that expand? Well, it's all training. It's just training. And what that means to me, it's an important word, because it means it's totally possible. It's totally available. Okay, and I don't know how it sounds, but it's we're really talking about something um, you know, majestic in its grandeur, un, un, uh, unfathomable in its in its beauty and wonder and depth and sublimity and dimensionality and divinity, but but also that in in another sense or at the same very same time is just a training. Yes, it's very rare and even rarer, as I said, than the vastness of awareness. But it's just a training. It's rare just because people have not been taught or don't sustain their their journey of, of uh, working towards it, playing towards it. So it's possible and available if, if we get our, desi- our relationship with desire right. All this, and that's why I keep coming back to that. You can talk about blah, 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 and all this great sounding stuff, but if the relationship with desire isn't, if I don't understand myself in relationship to desire, I don't understand what I'm bringing in or what is brought into my desires at different times and how I relate to that, not just in this moment, but over time, in a sustained way for a retreat, but also for years, months and years. If it's possible and available, if, if I have that fundamental inquiry and understanding and right relationship with desire. And, I think, if I bring a kind of intelligence to my working and playing. And by intelligence, I don't mean scholarship. I've said that before. Nor do I mean something really intellectual. I don't mean that at all. I mean everything that we've emphasized, the flexibility, the responsiveness, the attunement, the um, coherent conceptual framework of what am I doing and why and where is it going and how does this fit into where I'm going? Because that larger, that bigger picture conceptual framework will should guide me in my momentary choices and momentary emphases. So if that's askew, or I haven't kind of got a coherent one, or it doesn't make sense, or if I'm trying to trying to work towards this jhana, but actually my I haven't I'm I'm laboring under the umbrella of a, a, a conceptual framework that doesn't really support it, or emphasizing emphasizes an aspect like. Um, how long can I stay on one object? We've talked about this before. That I'm emphasizing something that's actually just going to capsize the boat and not let this boat de- deliver uh, deliver me to where it, where I want to go. So if there's the right relationship with desire and inquiry into that and the open, that's the hard thing, you know. That's not an easy thing. That's a big. That's a big ask, and it's more fundamental. And if there's this intelligent what I mean by intelligent work and play, then these things are really possible and available. They're just trainings. They're just trainings. So last thing about desire, and someone wrote a note, uh, a couple of people wrote a note, in fact. Um, So again, it's just a small thing for people who are already familiar with soul-making dharma, um, just very briefly. We talked about this, the importance and the absolute necessity of having a helpful view of the self on the path, a helpful view of the practitioner self. And in Soul Making Dharma, we talk about um, fantasies of the path, fantasies of the self on the path. And I've talked about that several times in, in other Soul Making uh, in, in soul making retreats over the last years. I can't remember where, but it's there. Um, 
And some a couple of people were asking, yeah, but okay, but when you're on a jhana retreat, for example, or let's say it's an emptiness retreat, or let's say it's a meta retreat, or it's a themed retreat, and it's not a soul-making themed retreat, how do I relate to this whole idea of fantasy? How can I work with the whole idea of fantasy? Because I'm supposed to be doing jhana practice, or I'm supposed to be in emptiness practice, or whatever it is. So, um, a fantasy is something, as I said, that's almost, I, I use it as a, as a word, something in the background. Something in the background. It's a background kind of imaginal narrative, if you like, or semi-narrative. Mm, but, it, but, it, but it in fact has eternal, an et- eternality to it. But it's in, in a narrative f- appearance, if you like. But it's in the background. Um, and what can happen, or what we can do sometimes, is bring that, when we notice that fantasy, we can bring it into the foreground and, and work on it with our imaginal practice. In other words, what was fantasy in the background becomes image in the foreground, and then we work and play with and, uh, w- and with that image. And of course, it might be a f- a, an image of myself. So that's what we're working with. So a glimpse of fantasy in the corner of my eye when things are going really well, when I'm into practice, when I'm inspired. A glimpse of the fantasy, and then if I want, I can bring that to the foreground and work on it um, in in a sort of conscious, deliberate, imaginal practice. Um, but then, once you've done that, it can go to the background again. Um, so that's that's one one way of doing it. Or th- you might find there's no fantasy, actually. There's just dukkha. I'm just stuck here. I just I'm hitting my head against a brick wall. I feel completely contracted or imprisoned or whatever it is. Um, I'm, I'm, there is no fantasy. Or what there is is a self-view that's not an imaginal fantasy. It's an impoverishment and it's a reified uh, self-view that's painful. Then, as I said yesterday, then what I have to do is I have to go through that dukkha. I have to go right to the middle of the dukkha and feel the dukkha of it and feel the pain of it. And I have to hold it in certain ways. I cannot approach it just with simple mindfulness. Simple mindfulness will drain the self out and drain the story out. Very useful at times, but here we want a certain kind of a certain kind of crucible, a certain kind of holding which allows the self to be there and the dukkha and the story, but allows them to to alchemically reconfigure or or arise differently um, in a much more helpful way. So through the dukkha and through the very heat of the dukkha and the material of the dukkha in that crucible, if I hold it right in my imaginal practice, then an image of the self and an image of the path will arise. Um, and then that can go to the background. Okay, if, if this is all in the context of a jhana retreat or an emptiness retreat or a metta retreat and not a soul-making retreat, it can go to the background. In other words, we only use these fantasies, we only bring them to the foreground as much and when they are needed. Otherwise, they can stay in the background. And from the background, they quietly but powerfully do their work um, in, in their subtle, half-hidden, almost, uh, um, what's the word, subliminal way. From the background. So you bring it forward, or you f- concentrate on your dukkha and allow the image to become primary only when you need it. Um, a bit like using insight ways of looking on a jhana retreat, if an insight way of looking is not your base or springboard practice. For some people it is, and that's fine, they're doing that all the time. For other people, it's sort of almost last in the list of things to do when mm, something feels stuck. 
I try this, I try imagining, I try breathing through, I try this and this and this, I try etc. Um, last on the list, maybe, is an insight way of looking, but I'm just taking something else, bringing it into uh, primacy for a certain time for the sake of lubricating and opening up the jhanic path now on this retreat where there's a uh, an intention and an intention to stay constant with my intention and on a certain path and I bring it and when it does its work I can let it go again unless it's my primary uh, my base practice so we only use it um, kind of when w when we've tried everything else which hasn't helped does that make sense yeah okay so let's let's um let's sit quietly for a bit
It's time for tea now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.